again and this is understanding childhood cancer and today I'm going to talk a bit more about bone marrow transplants and I need you to listen to the other episode on bone marrow transplants just to know a bit of the basics about what a bone marrow transplant is all about but in particular today I'm going to talk about an autologous bone marrow transplant. Now from the other podcast you will have heard about a bone marrow transplant where we get the bone marrow from one person and we give it to another person. So that's a bone marrow transplant that's called an allogeneic bone marrow transplant, an allotransplant. That's not what I'm talking about today. Today I'm talking about a bone marrow transplant or a stem cell transplant where the patient's own bone marrow is collected and frozen, and then given back to them later on. And it'll all make sense why we would want to do such a thing. And this is called an autologous bone marrow transplant, but it might also be called high-dose chemotherapy with stem cell rescue or stem cell support. There's a few different names because often we're not using bone marrow anymore. We're using stem cells from the blood. So it's not really a bone marrow transplant anymore. The interesting thing is that the aloe transplant was developed first. And a lot of the reason for that was to do the autologous transplant. Scientists had to work out how to freeze bone marrow and then be able to thaw it out again. And to do that without the cells all dying and so aloe transplant was easier in some respects because you could just collect the bone marrow and then you didn't have to freeze it. But with the autologous transplant, you have to freeze it. Now, perhaps your doctors are talking about doing some sort of a bone marrow transplant and you're wondering, ah, now which one are they talking about? Is this the aloe transplant from another person or is it the autologous transplant using the patient's own bone marrow? Well, you better check that out with them. But a few ways to sort of get a rough idea or have an educated guess what they're talking about would be to look at what disease it is that is being treated. So if a patient has high-risk neuroblastoma, most of the time it'll be an autologous bone marrow transplant that's being talked about. If they have a brain tumour or a sarcoma, again, probably they're talking about an autologous bone marrow transplant. Now, if a patient has leukemia, particularly acute myeloid leukemia or acute lymphoblastic leukemia, and there's been a relapse or it's a high-risk form of ALL, like Philadelphia chromosome positive or something like that, then there's more of a chance that they'd be talking about an allogeneic bone marrow transplant. So bone marrow from another person, someone in the family or some other donor somewhere in the world. Now, if they were talking about lymphoma, again, probably they're talking about allogeneic transplant, but 
For instance, in Hodgkin's disease, there's a role for autologous bone marrow transplant as well. And in certain situations with leukaemia, there might still be a place for autologous bone marrow transplant. We used to do them quite a bit in acute myeloid leukaemia, and there would still be situations for doing them. In acute lymphoblastic leukaemia, occasionally there might be a place for an autologous transplant, perhaps in the patient who has had a relapse, but only in the spinal fluid and not in the bone marrow, or perhaps only in the testicles and not in the bone marrow. There might be a situation where autologous transplant is considered. Then there's a whole lot of other diseases that aren't cancer which can be treated with bone marrow transplants. So there's genetic diseases and immune deficiencies. Diseases like that are normally going to be treated with an allotransplant if they're talking about bone marrow transplants. So let me turn to the logic behind this autologous bone marrow transplant. From my earlier podcasts on chemotherapy, you will have heard that chemotherapy is bad for the bone marrow. So when we give certain chemotherapy drugs, the bone marrow takes a hit and then stops making blood for a few days and then all the blood counts drop a week or two later and then we can end up needing blood transfusions or platelet transfusions if the doses of chemotherapy were high enough and it can be quite severe and the white blood cell count will go low But eventually the blood counts recover and often that takes two or three weeks and then we're ready to give the chemotherapy again. And depending on how high the chemo doses were and what drugs we used, the severity of this bone marrow suppression will vary. Now imagine if we give higher and higher doses of chemotherapy. Well, the blood counts will go lower and lower and they'll stay lower and lower for a longer period. And that's undesirable. The longer the white cell count is very low, the more danger of an infection occurring. Okay, now imagine that we gave such a super, super high dose of chemotherapy to try to kill the cancer. But it was so high that the bone marrow just won't recover at all. Or if it does recover, it's going to take many weeks to recover. Well, that might be very good for killing the cancer. A whopping high dose of chemotherapy might be a good thing for killing the cancer, for curing the cancer. But it's certainly not a good thing to wipe out the bone marrow permanently or to wipe it out so that the blood counts are incredibly low for many weeks on end. That would be extremely dangerous. So that's where this autologous bone marrow transplant thing comes in. The idea with an autologous bone marrow transplant is to collect some of the patient's bone marrow and then freeze it. And then later on in treatment, we can give a whopping high dose of chemotherapy, maybe with radiotherapy as well, a super high dose, a dose that would almost wipe out their bone marrow completely. And then get the bone marrow out of the freezer, thaw it out, and give it back to the patient through the central line, and then that bone marrow will do just what a bone marrow transplant normally does. It'll go to the bone marrow, and the stem cells will sit there, and then they will start making blood all over again. So what we're really doing is storing up some bone marrow that doesn't get exposed to this super huge dose of chemotherapy, 
and then we give it back to the patient to rescue them from the super high dose of chemotherapy. So this is a way we can give a super high dose of chemotherapy. Now remember, we're not actually giving the chemotherapy because we want to wipe out the bone marrow. We're giving it to try to cure the cancer. And there's a lot of good logic behind giving a super high dose of chemotherapy. For a lot of chemotherapy drugs, higher doses work better than lower doses. So it's a good idea to try to give higher doses of chemotherapy. The problem is, how can you do it and get the patient through it? Well, this is how you do it, and you do it with this autologous bone marrow transplant. Like I said, also called a stem cell rescue, or a high-dose chemotherapy with stem cell support. Or it might be called myeloablative therapy with stem cell support. Myeloablative means it wipes out your bone marrow. Not because we want to wipe out the bone marrow just because it happens while we're giving this whopping high dose of chemotherapy. Now I'd like to describe a typical scenario of how we end up doing this autologous bone marrow transplant. And as an example, I'll talk about a patient with, say, neuroblastoma that's high risk. But the same principles would apply in certain other high-risk malignancies. So the patient with high-risk neuroblastoma will have started chemotherapy to try to kill the cancer. And after one or two or three cycles of treatment of chemotherapy, then we'll be making plans to try to collect some bone marrow stem cells and put them in the freezer. Now, the way we collect bone marrow these days is different. When this technique was first invented, we would indeed collect bone marrow by giving an anaesthetic and then sticking needles into the pelvic bones at the back, just below the waist, stick the needles in and suck out bone marrow, filter it and put it in a bag and then freeze it. These days we don't have to do that to collect bone marrow stem cells. These days we can make the bone marrow stem cells move out of the bone marrow and into the bloodstream. And once they're in the bloodstream, they're much easier to collect. So how do we get them to move out of the bone marrow and into the bloodstream? Well, we use a combination of two things most of the time. The first is chemotherapy. It happens to be the case that when you give someone high doses of chemotherapy, then several days later, maybe 10, 12, 14 days later, Bone marrow stem cells just happen to appear in the bloodstream. Don't ask me why, but they just happen to appear in the bloodstream. The second thing we do is we give a drug called GCSF. GCSF, granulocyte colony stimulating factor. Now GCSF is given to a lot of patients after chemotherapy to help their white blood cell count recover more quickly than it usually would. A lot of patients are being given GCSF. But in this particular situation, GCSF also plays a role in making bone marrow stem cells move out of the bone marrow and move into the bloodstream. So this combination of the chemotherapy 
followed by the GCSF, all can make the bone marrow stem cells appear in the bloodstream maybe 12, 13, 14 days later, and then we can collect them. Now you can mobilise stem cells with GCSF alone, you don't need the chemotherapy, and then you might just give GCSF for three or four days. But we happen to be giving chemotherapy anyway to treat the cancer. So we would normally go with that system in neuroblastoma. Give the chemotherapy, give the GCSF injections, and then collect the stem cells maybe 12, 14 days later. In addition, there's another drug called Plerixafor. That's a new drug that also helps to mobilise stem cells into the bloodstream. Anyway, however we've mobilised the cells, we start looking for the bone marrow stem cells in the blood, typically around day 12 or 14 or something like that. Now the way we look for bone marrow cells in the bloodstream is by measuring cells that have a chemical on their surface called CD34. CD34 is the bone marrow stem cell marker. So cells with CD34 on them, they're the cells we want to get. CD34 positive cells. And a blood sample can be taken and sent to a special lab and then they can measure the level of CD34 positive cells in the bloodstream. And when the CD34 count is high enough, then we can proceed to collect these peripheral blood stem cells. That's what we're now calling them. They are bone marrow stem cells, but we now call them peripheral blood stem cells or PBSCs. Okay, now, how do we collect these cells from the bloodstream? We can't just take a gallon of blood out and send it to the lab. No, what we do is use something called a phoresis machine. Phoresis, P-H-E-R-E-S-I-S, a phoresis machine, leukophoresis machine. Now, this is a machine that we connect the patient to And suppose we're using the patient's central line, and suppose it's a double lumen central line. Then we connect the patient to the machine, and the machine draws blood out of one lumen of the central line. The blood goes into the machine, and then the machine spins it and whizzes it. You know, it's got these centrifuge-like things in it. And then the machine is all set up to select out the stem cells according to their density, and then send all the other blood cells back to the patient through the other lumen of the central line. So the patient lies there in bed watching TV for four or five hours while their blood goes out of their body into the machine. The machine whizzes it, collects the stem cells in a bag, and sends the rest of the blood back through the other lumen of the central line. So they do that for four or five hours And if they don't get enough stem cells, well, they might try again the next day. They might give another dose of GCSF and then try again the next day. Anyway, we can do it for two days or even three days. Haven't often done it for four days. It's a bit like one of those, um, it's a bit like a kidney machine. You know, people on dialysis that have their blood taken out of their body and then the kidney machine purifies it and gets rid of all the stuff that we don't want in our body anymore and then sends the rest of the blood back. It's a bit like that, but in this occasion we're collecting stem cells for the transplant. 
Now, some patients' central lines don't work very well for the stem cell harvesting, or maybe they don't have a double lumen central line at all. Well, then we have to use a different way of getting the blood from the patient to the machine. So in some situations, it might be that we can just stick a drip in each arm, particularly with bigger patients where we can put a large cannula, you know, a large IV, into each arm. And so the blood can go out of one arm to the machine and then back into the other arm. An alternative is to put in a special central line that we just leave in for a couple of days just for the stem cell harvest. So, you know, patients have central lines that you can leave in for months for chemotherapy. Sometimes the blood flow out of them isn't very well. Sometimes they're too soft and they sort of collapse on themselves under the suction from the machine. So if that's the case, then we might put in a special central line just to use for a couple of days. And in particular, we might put that in the femoral vein, femoral vein down in the groin. The femoral vein comes back from the leg, carrying all the blood back from the leg. Or we can put a a special central line in there just for a couple of days. That's called a VASCATH. Well, that's the one we use, a VASCATH. Often we would knock the patient out with an anaesthetic to put in the VASCATH. But that can just stay in for a couple of days and then it can be removed when we're finished with it. That usually doesn't take an anaesthetic, the removal part. Anyway, patient lies there for four or five hours watching TV, playing with the iPad, writing letters on account of Amnesty International to third world dictators. Whatever they want to do, they do it. And then the stem cells are collected. And then we can send those stem cells to the lab. And then they'll do the CD34 count on the stem cell collection all over again and tell us, well, how many CD34 positive cells have we collected? And there'll be a target amount of stem cells that we want to collect. It might be that we want to collect 2 million CD34 positive cells for every kilogram of body weight. Or it might be we'd like 5 million. Or it might be we want 10 million. There will be a target stem cell amount that the team want to collect for this autologous bone marrow transplant. And then we can see if we've got enough cells or do we have to do it all over again tomorrow. Or sometimes the patient just doesn't mobilise stem cells very well and we just have to give up altogether and make a different plan. But if we've got enough cells, then that's the end of the stem cell harvesting. The VASCATH can be removed if we needed one and the patient can often be discharged from hospital and then get on with the rest of their chemotherapy plan. Meanwhile, the lab is freezing those cells in a very special freezer called a controlled rate freezer that drops the temperature at the exact right rate and they'll have a special preservative in there to protect the cells and then we'll end up with these bone marrow stem cells that have now been frozen in a very special way to keep them alive in the freezer. So now the patient can get back on with the chemotherapy treatment of their cancer and it might be that we don't plan to use the stem cells for some months but we've collected them early in treatment because the patient's bone marrow is healthier at that point and so we can collect stem cells more readily. If we wait till we've given the patient 10 cycles of chemotherapy, well, maybe they won't mobilise their stem cells as well and we won't be as successful in collecting them. So we tend to collect the stem cells fairly early on in treatment, put them in the freezer and then get on with the rest of the chemotherapy and with a plan to use the stem cells later on.
in my example of neuroblastoma, for instance, we might give another few cycles of chemotherapy, have surgery to remove the tumour, give another cycle of chemotherapy, and then plan to get on with this high-dose chemotherapy with stem cell rescue, the auto-transplant. Now I want to talk about the procedures of actually doing this bone marrow transplant, this autologous bone marrow transplant. Now in many units, there's a special bone marrow transplant team that would take over the care. So for instance, the regular oncology team might hand the patient on to the bone marrow transplant team just for this particular phase of treatment. Not always. A lot of units have the regular oncologists looking after the autologous transplants. But in any event, the team will choose what we call the conditioning regimen. The conditioning regimen or the preparative regimen. So this is that combination of very high-dose chemotherapy drugs to be used to try to wipe out the cancer once and for all. So the drugs will be chosen predominantly according to what can work to kill any residual cancer. But also, the drugs have to be chosen now not according to how much can the bone marrow handle, but now it's how much can the rest of the body handle. So remember, we've got the bone marrow ready to be rescued. So now we can give higher doses of chemotherapy and not worry about the bone marrow. The problem is we still have to worry about the rest of the patient. So now the thing that limits our doses is the toxicity to the rest of the body, what we call the non-hematological toxicities. So the hematological toxicities are the blood count stuff. Now that'll still happen, but we'll rescue the patient with the bone marrow. Now we have to worry about the non-hematological toxicities. So how much can the mouth handle? How much can the intestines handle? How much can the liver handle? How much can the lungs handle? And these are all the very big questions that you look at when determining what conditioning to use for an autotransplant or for an allotransplant. So we will choose a conditioning regimen, again, designed to kill what's left of the cancer, but also chosen to be something that the rest of the body can handle. And this might involve giving drugs for four days, five days, seven days, something like that, big, strong doses, and the patient will be in hospital for this. But after they've had all of the conditioning chemotherapy, then maybe with a day or two break, maybe not, then the lab will bring the stem cells over and they can be thawed out and just given intravenously through the central line. And that's normally pretty uneventful. Oftentimes you can smell the preservative that comes out with the stem cells, this stuff called DMSO, dimethyl sulfoxide. That's the preservative in the stem cells. Often you can smell that and it comes out in the patient's breath for a while. Some people cut up oranges and leave them around the room to neutralize that smell. So now those stem cells will go through the bloodstream, end up in the bone marrow and start making blood cells, but that's going to take some time. That might take two weeks, for instance, for what we call engraftment to occur. So it might be two weeks later, might be three weeks later, until the bone marrow starts making blood cells again. 
So during that time, the patient has low blood counts, ends up needing blood and platelet transfusions, ends up with low white blood cell counts, and so ends up on antibiotics. And that's quite severe. The level of bone marrow suppression is still very severe, and it goes on for quite a period. And so this is a bit of a dangerous time, and patients can get quite sick, and plus the rest of their body is also suffering the effects of this very high-dose chemotherapy. So it would be common to get severe mouth ulcers and need, say, a morphine infusion or a fentanyl infusion for pain. It would be common to need intravenous fluids a lot or even intravenous feeding. Some patients will still manage with nasogastric feeding, but it's quite a tough time. We're talking about something that really is a big deal, doing this sort of bone marrow transplant. And patients typically are in hospital for a good four weeks or five weeks or six weeks, and and it's possible to get quite sick during it. The good thing is that patients having autologous transplants don't need to go on immune suppression afterwards, the way the patients with allotransplants do. So you remember the allotransplant patients have to go on immune suppression to stop them getting graft-versus-host disease. Well, we don't have to do that in autologous bone marrow transplantation. The patient stays in hospital until the blood counts have recovered, at least partially, any infections are under control, and until they've recovered in the rest of their body. So they have to have recovery of mouth ulcers, recovery of their intestines if they've developed some inflammation of the intestines, and generally they have to recover from the whole thing. And like I said, it could easily be four or five or six weeks or even longer in hospital after an autologous bone marrow transplant. Next thing to mention is that there are some situations where we actually perform multiple bone marrow transplants on the same patient. So there's been some research over the years in neuroblastoma looking at what you call tandem autologous bone marrow transplants. That is, doing the bone marrow transplant twice, once with one set of drugs and the second time with a different set of drugs as conditioning. So the logic was that if one transplant improves the outcomes, well, maybe a second one will do the same thing. And that's still a work in progress. We still don't know what to make of that. There's some other transplant protocols I've seen in some of the brain tumour protocols where patients have up to three bone marrow transplants. So in those situations, we harvest the stem cells, but we freeze them in at least three separate bags. And then the patient goes on to have high-dose chemotherapy and stem cell rescue three times over. Now I'd have to say that each of them probably aren't as strong as the patients that just have one super-huge autologous transplant, but it's still a big deal, still big, strong drugs, so still quite an undertaking. Another thing to mention is the recovery of the patient's immune system after an autotransplant. So we may see the blood counts recover within a few weeks and see the white blood cell count come up and the platelet count come up, but the rest of the immune system can often take longer to recover. And these are parts of the immune system that we can't really measure very readily. But transplant units will often have patients on certain medications to protect them from certain infections. So they may have the patient taking 
antibiotics to prevent a certain type of pneumonia. They may give some antiviral drugs to prevent, you know, cold sore activation. And they may be on an antifungal drug. It'll all depend a little bit on the nature of the patient and what diseases they've had in the past or what infections they've had in the past and how severe the immune suppression of the chemotherapy is expected to be. So these are complicated matters for the transplant team to work through. They may also have recommendations for isolating the patient. They'll have particular policies for isolating the patient during those weeks in hospital. And then after going home from hospital, there'll be guidelines there as well. Can they have visitors? Can they go back to school? All of these things will depend on the immune reconstitution that occurs in the months after the bone marrow transplant. But anyway, that's my description of autologous bone marrow transplantation. So again, it's mostly used in patients with the solid tumours like neuroblastoma, sarcoma, brain tumours. In some of these settings, there's very good evidence that the use of this procedure will improve the chances of curing the cancer. In some other diseases, its efficacy is less established. It might still be experimental or its place might be reserved for more desperate situations. But it involves collecting bone marrow stem cells, usually from the blood, and freezing them, and then later on giving a very, very high dose of chemotherapy, sometimes with radiation therapy, and then rescuing the patient with their own bone marrow. So it's a major undertaking. It's, it's a bit dangerous. It's quite toxic, and it has some weeks in hospital. But in certain situations, there's very good evidence that it can improve our chances of curing the cancer. Thanks again for listening in to Understanding Childhood Cancer. I'm Dr. Jeff. I hope this has been helpful for you. If not, or if I've confused you, then leave a question at the Facebook page. Go to Facebook and look for Understanding Childhood Cancer with Dr. Jeff, spelling Jeff, G-E-O-F-F, and leave a question and I can get back to you. But for now, that's it from me, and I'll talk to you next time. Bye now.